Welcome to the MWC Church Podcast. MWC Church is a place where you can belong, believe, and become the person God's created you to be. Thanks for joining us online. Hey, I'm so happy you guys are here. Um, I may or may not have talked to the actual Grinch and uh, he may or may not have confirmed that he will be here uh, the December 22nd and 23rd. So if, if you're looking for a fun photo op with the Grinch, just saying he might or might not be here on December 22nd and 23rd, uh, our, our Christmas weekend. Hey guys, I'm so glad you're here. We are in a series called Don't Be a Grinch. Um, and this is a time where we're just taking a lighthearted look at, at one of our most beloved characters in, in the Christmas story. Uh, time, the Christmas season, we're looking at the Grinch, and, and I think we, we love to hate on the Grinch. Like, it's fun to call people a Grinch, but, but I, I truly believe that if we're going to be honest here, uh, the Grinch is really just a caricature. What, what, do I, what do I mean by a caricature? If you look at a caricature, if you go to the carnival, and, and uh, let's, say, let's say that morning your ears look a little bigger than normal, right? When, you, when they make a caricature of you, they're going to make those ears ginormous, right? It's just the way caricatures work. They're, they're intended to distort something that is kind of true. And when we look at the Grinch, he is a distortion, I would say, and I think this is what, what uh, Dr. Seuss's intention was. He is kind of a, of, of an, a distortion of, of, of what we or who we can be from time to time. There are tendencies that we all have uh, that cause us and, and sometimes could, could lead us to become kind of like a Grinch ourselves. If, if you remember last week, we talked about the Grinch and, and his incessant unhappiness. You remember how, how the Grinch is just always unhappy. There's nothing that makes him happy. Uh, there's, a, there's a portion even in the song that says, I wouldn't even touch you with a 39 and a half inch pole. You're, you're so unbecoming that I wouldn't even get that close to you, 39 and a half uh, feet away from you. And uh, we, we said last week that if you are someone who, who struggles with, with happiness, maybe you, you would say, you know what, there are times where, where I'm unhappy, or maybe you said, I'm not unhappy at all. I brought five questions that we could just look to to kind of survey, take inventory of our lives to see if we are, in fact, unhappy or if we are uh, happy, like what kind of individuals that we are. And we said this, that, that at the end of those questions, if you even answered maybe to any of those and you would identify as someone who, who leans towards unhappiness, we said this, that that we have been given hope, that this is what draws us to joy, that, that we, have, we have a hope, that we don't have to be unhappy individuals, that we don't have to be defined by our circumstances or our situations, that, that we can be people who, who can look at our, our current situation, or we can look, uh, hope is the power to look at our current situation, remind ourselves of God's past faithfulness, and choose the choice to believe in his future promise. So as, as believers, we have the opportunity to, to, to walk through life, and it doesn't matter what comes up against us. We can look back and say, Lord, you have been faithful back then. I know that in this current situation and in my future, you will be faithful once again. Isn't that what Christmas is all about? We, 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 we enjoin with all of creation and we sing out, we, we remember the arrival of our son or of, of the king of, uh, of the world, the son of God, that, that he once came and that one day he will come again. Isn't that what Advent is all about? The arrival of our king. We, we thank the Lord that he came as a, as a eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus, but, but we know that, that he will come again one day and be the king, or he is the king, but he will inaugurate completely his kingdom. 
So we look forward to that. So if that's the way that the, the, the whole biblical narrative functions, if that is the truth of God, then we know that as, as believers, we can choose to walk that way in every situation. No matter what is coming up against us, we can say, Lord, you have been, always been faithful. I know you will be faithful again. That is the definition of hope, the ability to look back, see the previous faithfulness of God, look at your current situation and say, in the future, he will be faithful. I trust him, I believe him, no matter what I face, he is always faithful, amen? We serve a faithful God. But it's not just the hope that gives us hope, leads us to the promise of joy. And we said this, our joy has a name. It's not a feeling, it's not an emotion. Joy is something deeper. Joy has a name and his name is Jesus. Our joy has a name, and his name is Jesus. So today, we're going to step away from the grinchiness of, of unhappiness. We're going to, uh, man, maybe, maybe you are, are with the Grinch right now. Today, we're going to have a conversation about the Grinch uh, emotion or the Grinch feeling of unhappiness, unhappiness. Just kidding, that was last week. <laughs> unforgiveness, I'm like, wait, that doesn't sound right. Unforgiveness, the, the Grinch-like feeling of, of unforgiveness. Today we're gonna take another piercing glance into the Grinch-like personality trait, unforgiveness. So unforgiveness is the inability to make room for someone else's errors or weaknesses, usually leading to deep-rooted offense or resentment. What, unforgiveness, this, this idea that, that we're not gonna cut anybody some slack. You ever hear that? You ever hear that phrase? Give me some slack or cut me some slack. That's exactly the, if we're gonna look at the biblical word of uh, unforgiveness, it's exactly what it means when you're, you're making room for something. You, you understand that this individual is not perfect. They're per, they might be perfect in your eyes, but, but they're not perfect, right? They're, they're, they're capable of error. They're capable of sin. So what this, this heart of forgiveness does is you give people slack. You understand that, that you're not going to be so tight with them that there's going to be no room for error. There's no margin for error. Uh, this is exactly what unforgiveness means. It means uh, the inability to give anybody some slack, the inability to make room for someone else's errors or weaknesses, which usually, if we're going to walk in a heart of unforgiveness, usually this will lead to deep-rooted offense and resentment. The less slack you give people, the more you're setting yourself up for disappointment and the more you set yourself up for disappointment, the more you're gonna allow deep-rooted offense and resentment to sit in, or set in. So does that mean we don't set the standard in people's lives? No, that's not what I'm saying. But the more, the higher, the more stricter of a, of a, a situation that we place on people, it's gonna be that much more easy for there to be uh, offense and resentment. So today I want to give just four features. So you may be saying, you know what, I'm, I'm particularly not an unforgiving person. Usually it's easy for me to forgive. Well, I want to ask you four questions, four questions that you can ask yourself to see if you are an unforgiving Grinch or not. Everybody say, unforgiving. Unforgiving. You may be an unforgiving Grinch when you see that person when you see that person and before they say anything or do anything, you become angry. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You're laughing right now. You're like, yep, yep. You may be an unforgiving Grinch. If, if before you see that person, before they even open their mouth, you're just like, Arr. or if they're walking through the door, you're just like, can I close this any faster, right? Like, like you may be an unforgiving Grinch. If, if before you see that person, you're already getting angry. And usually, usually, this is how you know this is what you struggle with. Usually it starts with something they did. If you start lamenting or complaining about this individual to another person, it usually starts with something they did. I cannot believe that they lied to me the way they did. And then 
it leads into something else. You begin talking about things normally that they can't control. And have you ever seen his walk? Oh my gosh, his walk is annoying. Right? Or, or oh my goodness, can, can somebody give that guy a haircut? Like, like it's like you start off with something that is true, an offense that they brought to you, and then it leads into something that they can't even control, their laugh or their walk. And it's just like, uh, this is how you know you may be struggling with unforgiveness. If it starts off with some, an offense and it leads to something they can't control, you get angry with this person before you even see them. You know what this is called? It's called prejudging where you judge someone before all of the facts are laid out. You, you begin to judge someone before you know uh, the evidence is, that is before you. You're already judging their motives, right? Uh, you're already thinking this is their intention. This is what they're trying to say. This is what they're trying to do. They're, they're the worst person in the world. They're, they're worse than the Grinch. In fact, you would never uh, even touch them with a 40-foot pole, right? Like, like all these different things. But if you look at the word prejudging, it looks eerily close to the word prejudice, Prejudice, and oftentimes we say prejudice is if pertaining to someone's color or skin tone or uh, someone's whatever have you, their, their, their makeup. But really, if we are judging someone before we have all of the evidence, isn't that prejudice? Isn't, isn't that something? Yeah, so, so this idea of, uh, of, of being an unforgiving person, you know you're unforgiving if you're already judging the person before the facts are there. You know that it, the moment you see them and you're angry, there's chances, there's, there's likelihood that you have unforgiveness deep in your heart. The second one, the second question, you may be an unforgiving Grinch if you believe and or say the phrase, time heals all wounds. Time heals all wounds. You don't have to raise your hand, but I know if we took an inventory and we asked uh, who, who, who has said this before, we would all have our hands up. We, this idea that time heals all wounds. And we'll say, doesn't the Bible say time heals all wounds? No. The Bible does not say time heals all wounds. There is nowhere in scripture that you can find though that phrase parsed together. There's, there's nothing that says time heals all wounds. Uh, people would say, well, we can look to, to the medical field and see that time does. Like, yeah, if you get a cut uh, after some time, it ends up healing, right? Well, I'm gonna say this. Maybe, yes, perhaps, but, but when you truly look, even in the medical field, um, your, your body, when you get a cut, it's not time that heals anything. It's, it's a process that's taking place. Usually what happens in a cut, uh, the, the blood coagulates and, and then eventually it, it begins to swell and it, 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 it uh, becomes inflamed and it fights infection and there's things happening. Then there's a regeneration process where it scabs over. So yeah, time is the, the vehicle for which healing can take place, but time in and of itself does not heal a thing. Usually we say time heals all things because we are trying to avoid addressing an issue. We say if I put it on the back burner of my life, then time in itself will, will scab up and I'll be able to deal with this offense or I'll be able to deal with this individual who has harmed me, who, who has hurt me. But here's the thing, friends, I believe that, that the enemy is a liar and he tries to have us believe that, that time in and of itself has healing properties but I'm here to tell you, if you are holding or harboring an offense, there is no amount of time that will heal it. Time is just the vehicle. Let me say this again. Time doesn't heal anything. It's just the vehicle by which healing can arrive. Is that, does that make sense? You know, if, if, if you speak to someone who is, has a hemophilia disorder, 
right? The, the inability for blood to actually coagulate. And, and you tell them that, that time is just gonna heal this cut. They're gonna be like, no, 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 no. Time can't. I, I need something else to, to heal this. There is a healing system that needs to take place. And I'm gonna say the truth, uh, the same is true when it comes to our emotional hurts, our spiritual mishaps, that we just don't need time. We need a, something deeper, a, a healing property, a healing system. And I'm gonna say this. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, he gives us the answer of how we find healing. It's not time that heals all wounds. Look what 1 Peter says. He says, most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other. Everybody say deep love. In the Greek, this word deep means overzealous, strenuous, uh, strained. You, you know, uh, it's kind of, I would paint the, the image like this. You know, when you're, when you're putting on a, a, uh, a god-awful uh, mattress sheet over a sheet, you know, the ones that have like the elastic band on them. You know, when you're trying, and, you're, and your spouse, like you and your spouse are, are, are working to get this on, and, and right when you put your corner on, theirs comes up, and, and you're getting angry at each other, and you're just getting so frustrated, and then you need, pre-mar- or you need marital counseling after trying to just put a sheet on, and you, then you try to get the kids involved, and the kid's getting wrapped up, and they're rolling around, and it's like, it, it's so hard to put on those mattress sheets. This is kind of the imagery. When, when you get that mattress sheet completely on and it's super tight, you can like drop a dime and it shoots back up to the ceiling. Like this is the kind of, of deep love that biblical word is talking about. This, this, this actenia, it's what, it, it's what the word is. It's this continuous, unceasing, stretched out, strained out, constant, intense. This is the kind of love that the Bible is talking about. So, so Peter is saying, he's, t- he's talking to the church and he's bringing up all of these lists of traits that he wants to see in the church. And the one that he brings up there is, is he's like, continue to show that, that over-strenuous, that, that constraining, that, that intense, zealous love. And we know that love in the Greek has multiple ways to, 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 to imply what it means. We know that there's phileo, which is like uh, this brotherly love, where it's where we get the word Philadelphia, right? So phileia, or to, to be exact. And then there's eros. It's, it's kind of the, the, the romantic uh, between a one uh, husband and a wife kind of love, right? Um, and then we see agape. Agape love is, is the one that we see most uh, prescribed or descriptive of God and the kind of love that he wants to see in this in the church. So when Peter is saying, continue to show deep love, he's saying, as believers, we should have this unflinching, this over-strenuous, this zealous kind of love commitment to one another. And then look at, look at the result of this. He, he continues on in that passage. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other. For why? For love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't say time covers a multitude of sins, that if you put it in the back burner of your life and it's out of sight, out of mind, after some time, it'll cover a multitude of sins. He says, no, it's love that covers a multitude of sins. So the entire premise for, for us this morning is, is that it's, it's not time. The only way that we can experience forgiveness, the only way that we can experience healing, the only way we can walk this life without having resentment or, or just be one giant scab of frustration is if we choose to be people who learn how to love, love. The third way you know you're an unforgiving Grinch is this. You know you're an unforgiving Grinch if you tend to be easily offended. If you tend to be easily offended. I know right now some of you just got offended by me saying you're easily offended. You know, I, 
I have, a, I have three kids. I have a, an older son, a daughter who is literally 15 days younger. You're like, Pastor, how does that work? Uh, we, we chose to bring her into her home. She's, she's awesome. We have August, Aubrey, and, and Desmond. And uh, they, they are the, they're the best kids ever. I love waking up in the morning and making them breakfast. But one morning in particular, um, and if you knew my kids, you'd understand this story, but let me just give you a snapshot. August, is, is, he doesn't have a serious bone in his body. This kid is just like off the walls, always excited uh, every morning. He like you you would think it's Christmas morning because his eyes just get big and he's excited about something. He's like da da this and then and then Aubrey is is more of my my, my background child. Like she's gonna watch a little bit. Be she's more observant and then the moment she jumps in, she's all in. So she's a little more cautious. And then Desi's just he's just he just tackles everybody. Like I don't know what his personality is gonna be, but he just like runs and he slaps everybody and he beats everybody up. Uh, he is the the boss baby in the house. Uh, but one morning in particular, I was getting all three of them breakfast, and um, you know, August is he knows what he wants, and, and Aubrey knows what she wants, and Desi just wants everything. So I'm getting them breakfast, and I, I set them at the table, and um, um, August looks over to Aubrey. This is like right when they wake up. August looks over to Aubrey. He's like, "Hi, Aubrey!" Like typical August, big eyes, big smile, and Aubrey's like, "Leave me alone!" And she just like turns around. And, and I'm just like, uh, maybe they're just playing. I know they, they watch a lot of Frozen, and sometimes one's Elsa and the other one's Anna. And then, you know, like, leave me alone. Like, sometimes they do that. So I'm like, oh, we're just going to not make that a deal. And then August is like, okay. And he's just like eating his cereal, excited about life. And then he says, he says uh, Aubrey, can I, can I go get you a toy? Can I, can I? And she's like, no, August, leave me alone. And I'm like, Aubrey, you, you just woke up. Like, what, what's, what's going on? Why, why are you so, so mean or, or mad or upset with your brother? Like, did he, did he do something? Did he say something? And she said, yeah, Dada. He took my fox last night. And I was like, Aubrey, you're mad about something he did yesterday. Like, it's, it's a new day. And, and, and you know what? It, it's so funny. We, we are just like this. If we are holding on to an offense that has previously happened, it doesn't matter how far we move forward in life, that offense is still going to cause us to be wounded. And if we're wounded, how many of you know this? When you're nursing a wound, even the slightest of touches can hurt. Does that make sense? When you are wounded, when you are harboring an offense that someone committed against you, and you don't let that air out, and you don't handle it, and you think that time is just gonna heal this. When you are harboring a wound, even the slightest of touches can hurt you. Someone will come to you and say, how you doing this morning? And you're just like, what a jerk. (laughs) Someone holds the door open for you on their way to church, and you're just like, do they not think I'm capable of holding this door open for myself? Like, what are they trying to say? Like, Like, this is what happens when you are an unforgiving Grinch. You are just easily, we just become easily offended. You know, when I, I twisted an ankle one time and uh, playing volleyball, it was like the dumbest accident I've ever experienced in my life and it was the most humbling time of my life. I had to walk around with a big old boot. I even preached with a boot on. It was just embarrassing. And uh, I, I just remembered like um, trying to play through the pain. Has anyone ever did that? Maybe you grew up playing and your coach was like, we're gonna play through the pain, right? And you're just like, coach, I'm missing a finger. We're gonna play through the pain, right? We've kind of been taught this in life, especially in sports and, and how we like to pay through the, play through the pain. And sometimes we try to translate that to, to our emotional lives or, or to, our, to our spiritual lives or when we're offended or when we're hurt, we're just gonna play through the pain. We're not gonna deal with this. But you know what happens when you play through the pain and you don't allow healing to set in? Deformity. Deformity. The reason, the reason I can't bend my, my pinky toe on my left foot is because I played through the pain. I, I didn't allow the, I, it was broken and I was like, whatever, I'm gonna keep playing soccer and then now I can't bend this pinky toe. My pinky, I'm, I'm deformed, guys. Don't look at me, all right? Like, like 
this is what happens, and I, and, I, and I believe spiritually and emotionally, there are loads of us in this place, all of us, if we're gonna be honest, who have been taught to play through the pain and have not dealt with offense, have not dealt with, with an, uh, an attack that someone brought against us, and we just said, we're just gonna hold on to this, but you have gone your entire lives being so easily offended. You're still holding on, harboring that wound. Some of you in this place are holding on to the pain or offense or unforgiveness that has completely distorted your ability to experience the presence of God. You come to church and, 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 you, and you look at others and you wish you can jump in and experience the same thing, but you are still holding on to something. Your, your frustration, your sorrow is keeping you from entering into what God wants from you. You're walking around with a swollen, infected heart, which makes it difficult to even feel the presence of God. You know, there are people who even refuse to go to church because they are justifying it by a wound they experienced decades ago. Friends, you may be an unforgiving Grinch if you are easily offended. The fourth one is this. You may be an unforgiving Grinch if you turn Facebook into your own personal daytime talk show. You ever watch, like, no, no offense to you if this, is, if this is your thing, if you're a big Dr. Phil fan or a big Maury fan or hopefully, I don't even know if Jerry Springer's on anymore. I know he was when I was a kid. Um, but you, you, remember, you remember those, like, just how toxic that environment was? Everyone's screaming and yelling and then, and then someone is, like, embarrassed and everyone's, like, jumping in the crowd, like, oh, like, you are the father, oh, and then someone's, like, dancing and doing backflips and, like, you know, like, like it's just so toxic. And I believe sometimes we use our social media as a platform to, to be become our own daytime talk show where we'll, we'll passive aggressively write something. Like we'll be like public service announcement. You're just like, you know, you're not trying to address the public here. Like there is someone that you are thinking about when you are writing this public service announcement. So you can pretend and package this as a public service announcement. But really, this is like someone that you're trying to write a letter to. Like we all know it. We all know it. So you may be an unforgiving Grinch if you turn Facebook into your own personal daytime talk show. I actually got a a meme or a a picture, an image that encapsulates this perfectly. I want to show this to you. It says, it's this lady who's writing a, I don't know, she's got a pen in her, she's smiling. She's like, I'm going to leave passive aggressive quotes on Facebook instead of being direct and honest. I really don't want resolution anyway. Like, like this is exactly what we do. This is what we experience when we don't go to people directly, when we don't handle conflict, when, when you may be an unforgiving Grinch if you are someone who hops onto social media, or maybe, maybe you're, you're, hanging out with someone and you're over a coffee dinner or ever a coffee date or a dinner or something and the conversation is not even leading there but then something sparks in you and you start bringing up the past or something else someone did or you start bringing up this person you start talking about this individual that is these are all signs that are pointing to unforgiveness in your heart and it's not supposed to be there it's not supposed to be there what then should be our response to unforgiveness? What then should be our response to offense? Well, let me, let me say this. The first thing is this. Humble yourself before you hurt yourself. If you are holding on to unforgiveness, the, the first response is to humble yourself before you hurt yourself. We believe that by keeping it in, holding it in, we're actually doing people a favor, but in fact, you are only harming yourself. Not forgiving someone will hurt you more than it'll hurt anyone else. And I'm not just talking about emotionally by the lack of sleep or uh, the lack of health that you'll experience in your body. I'm talking about eternity. 
If you are someone who's experienced the forgiveness of Christ and you are still harboring unforgiveness towards another, you are on the verge of bringing great harm and destruction into your own life. Where do we see this? I'm gonna read some passages for you this morning. Look at Matthew chapter six. Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount and he's teaching his disciples how to pray. It's the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. And the very end of that prayer, At the very end of that prayer, he says this, and forgive us, he's speaking about the Lord, he's speaking about the Father, forgive us, Father, forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven forgiven our debtors. Now, what what does he mean by debts and and, and debtors? He's not talking about your Sally Mae student loans, he's not talking about that that credit card that's maxed out during the holidays, which wouldn't be awesome if the Lord just forgave those debts, like, that'd be awesome. I'm praying for that. But what does he mean by debts? Well, he's specifically talking about sin. You see, when we walk through life and we have a transaction, a spiritual transaction of sin, it is added to our account and it is viewed as a debt against the Lord. You see, when in the ancient Near East, in this time that Jesus is speaking to, an agricultural society, uh, they didn't have credit. They didn't have a credit system. Uh, the only way that you could pay something off, if you didn't have the means to pay for it then, is you would sell yourself to that individual or you would make payments or figure things out, but you would have to do something. You would become indebted to that individual. Usually you would sell yourself to them and and you would work and you would sign a contract and you'd become a servant of theirs. Now, we can never pay the debt of sin. We have accrued a very large account when it comes to sin. The Lord is the righteous banker. He's holy, he's loving, he's gracious. But every single time we have sinned, it amasses up and there is no way we could even pay it. In fact, if we even tried, we would, it would take thousands of lifetimes to pay back the sin of our debts. And here Jesus is making the specific prayer. Even though we can't pay God off, he still forgives our debts through Christ. He forgives us, he forgives us of our debts. So Jesus is saying, in your model prayer, I want you to pray this way. Lord, much in the same way you have forgiven my debt, may I forget someone else's. My debt against you, you are a holy God, and my debt is abysmal. But Father, my brother or sister, neither one of us are God. We are both at the same level. If they sin against me, may I forgive that balance when you've forgiven this one. That's exactly what he's praying. So Jesus is saying, and forgive us our debts as we also have, as you also have forgiven our, our debts. For if you forgive other people, Jesus says, when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Did you read that? For if you forgive other people, now he's instructing, he's, he's leaving the prayer aside and now he's bringing instruction. He says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That sounds nice. Look at the next phrase. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father cannot, will, cannot, or neither will he forgive your trespasses. Did you catch that? I mean, we teach this idea that God forgives all sins, and he does. He does. He forgives all sin. But did you know this, that if you harbor unforgiveness, God cannot and will not forgive your sin. It was, uh, the, the ability to even go to the Father requires the humility to understand how vast your sin was. 
And if you can't forgive another, the Lord cannot forgive you. We don't teach that very often in the church. But he says this. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 24 and 25. Jesus says it again. He says, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. How many of you have heard that passage before? When you go to the Lord in prayer, believe and just have faith, big faith. We always talk about big faith, but look at the next verse right after that. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sin. Listen, it doesn't matter how big your faith is, your unforgiveness will always harm your ability to receive anything from God through prayer. It doesn't matter how much you say something or how long you believe in something, how how many times you spend on your knees crying out before the Lord, if you're asking him for something and yet you still are harboring unforgiveness towards another person, you are harming the ability to receive anything from God. So that's exactly what we mean by humble yourself before you hurt yourself. We need to humble ourselves and give forgiveness before we receive anything. We will bring harm into our own lives. Well, that sounds great, but how many times should we forgive somebody? You know, Peter actually asked this question in in the exact same passage, Matthew 18. Uh, I want to read this to you. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Shall I forgive them up to seven times? And, and let's just pause there. We, we, if you've heard this passage, you, you know it. Um, but I think something is happening in this exchange between Peter and Jesus. You see, in our, in our culture, we understand like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We've heard strike one, strike two, strike three in your So we understand that that you forgive someone once or twice, maybe three times. And Peter, in the same similar thing in their culture, they believe that you you forgive up to three times. And now Peter is is multiplying the amount of forgiveness. He's like, Jesus, do you know, he's probably thinking, I'm gonna get some like spiritual, like I'm gonna get a star on my shirt today. Like Jesus is gonna be super satisfied with me this morning. Uh, Jesus, should we forgive our brothers seven times? Like it's super pious and holy of him. Jesus is just like, putting his palm to his forehead, and he's like, no, Peter. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And before you, like, okay, great. Like, does that mean, like, hey, you you warn someone, hey, you know what, I've forgiven you 68 times. You're getting close to that 77. If you keep going, I'm going to have to stop forgiving you. What does Jesus mean by you forgive someone 77 times? It's literally, seven was the number of completion. Uh, The numbers had a lot of uh, symbolism in in the ancient Near East, especially in in, in Judaism. Uh, Seven was the number of completion. It was a holy number. The Lord created it in seven days, right? Like, uh, we we see this, this number being a very holy, complete number. And Jesus is basically saying, we compound that number. Infinity times infinity. Completion times completion. So we are intended and meant to forgive someone infinite amount of times. An infinite amount of times. And then Jesus, because we know how, how difficult, is anybody hearing this and you're just like, that makes no sense. Or, or, does that mean we're doormats? And I, 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 I know it. And, and Jesus adds clarity to this by bringing a parable. He brings the parable in Matthew 18. He brings the parable of the ungrateful servant. He brings the parable of the ungrateful servant. Don't, you're giving it away. Don't put that up yet. That's the end of that. In this parable, he says this. I already saw some of you reading. I was like, don't read, don't read that yet. 
he gives this parable, and, and he says this to, 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 in the parable. He says, there was once a, a very good king. This king owned tons of property, tons of land, and, and there was one day where he was returning back to his kingdom, and he was bringing all of his servants in and saying, all right, everybody, it's time to pay up. It's time to pay the piper. It's time to pay off the accounts and the debts that you have. So he was collecting all of the debts and people were paying off their, their Macy's card. People were paying off their, you know, their Best Buy card and all these different things. And, and eventually, there was one servant in particular who, who King, who is representative of God, God the Father, goes to this individual and says, hey, you have a massive debt. And the guy's like, yeah, you know, a couple of Christmas, a couple of Black Fridays. I, I'm sure there, there's a lot happening there. I, you know, I sinned here. I went there. I did that. Uh, and the king is like, you have 100 talents worth of debt. Now you're like, well, what are 100 talents? A talent was 20 years uh, wages. I'm sorry. I think, I think in the text, it's 100,000 talents of debt, which am, amounts to about 200,000 years worth of debt. Somewhere, this guy, this servant, amassed 200,000 200, years of debt, and he is just completely distraught. He is terrified. So the good king, who, or the righteous king, looks at the servant and says, man, you gotta pay this off. Go, go sell everything you have. Go I mean, sell your kids, sell your wife, like everything, right? Like, like you're about to have nothing. And, and he goes and he tries to figure things out and eventually he realizes there is nothing I can do to ever pay off the debt that I am indebted to this king. He is a good king, but there is nothing I can do. I'll do this. I'll, I'll come to him. I'll, I'll fall before him and, and I'll just beg for him to forgive me of my debt. And he does this, and he's probably working himself up. He gets to the king. He falls to his knees and begins asking and pleading with him to forgive this debt, and the king says this, I'll forgive you of your debt. I'll completely wipe it away. As of right now, you are a freed man. I've forgiven you. Everything's, like, great. And he walks up. He's experienced this, this grace, this transaction where he could not pay for it, but the king did. And he gets up, and he's super excited and as he's skipping back home, about to tell his wife the news of this new free debt uh, or this, this, this free debt that he's experienced and that they, they don't have to sell the kids anymore. And the wife's like, darn it, I wanted to sell the kids. Um, you know, like he sees someone and uh, the, he, this is a guy that's been dodging him for a couple of, like, a couple of years. This guy's been like kind of avoiding him. If you've ever, you ever seen anybody who owes you money, they're just like, oh, you know, and they just do one of those and just like walk around. He finally catches the guy who owes him um, 10 bucks. And he runs up to this guy and he grabs him by the neck and he's choking him like, like Homer Simpson style. And he's like, literally, this is all in the text. Literally, you can read all of this. Uh, it doesn't say Homer Simpson in there, but it, it, he, he grabs the guy and he's choking him and he said, it's time for you to pay up. And uh, word from there gets sent to the king and the king hears that, that this servant who was just forgiven of 200,000 years of debt is angry about uh, 10 years of debt. So he calls this person in and look what happens. Then the master called the servant in and he says this, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? Get this. You're no better than him. He's no better than you. He is your fellow servant. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. And this is how, Jesus says, 
This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. If we extract some truths out of that parable into our own lives, friends, you and I have amassed a great debt of sin against the Lord. And glory to God, when we came to the realization that we could never pay that off, no amount of of charity, no amount of volunteering, no amount of prayers, no amount of falling our knees or church attendance or Sunday school classes or no amount of works or anything we could do, no amount of money could ever pay for the forgiveness of our debt. And we came to that realization and we came to the Lord and said, we need someone He provided Jesus and forgave us of our sin, forgave us of our debt. And that transaction was more than 200,000 years. And what the passage is teaching us is this. Why then would we ever feel we cannot forgive someone if we've experienced such a great forgiveness from our king. Why could we not forgive a brother or sister if we have experienced great forgiveness from a king? This is the entire passage. So the only way, like the only way God wants us to deal with others is to offer forgiveness. Look what he says in Luke chapter 17. He says, so watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Notice that he doesn't say, like, what what is rebuke? Does rebuke mean to to slap them upside the head with the Bible? Like, if if somebody sins against you, you open up to the passage that they need to be reading and you just slap them with that? No, that's not rebuking. I think sometimes in the church we think rebuking is getting on someone and harping on them, but but true rebuking is is correction for the hope of restoration. That is what true, and and if if you're trying to restore someone, you're gonna go to them with a different demeanor if you're just trying to correct them. It's correction for the hope of restoration. It's how the Lord deals with us. He never yells at us. He always gives us an opportunity to make things right, and it's always found in the person of Jesus. So when you rebuke somebody, um, it's intended to bring restoration. So what about, what about the person who has hurt us and harmed us? What, what's the response that we should have? I'm gonna say this, friends, have that coffee date. Have that coffee date. What do I mean by having that coffee date? Take that person out, go to them, and address the offense if they've harmed you, if they've sinned against you, and if you're telling yourself, we're just gonna let time deal with this, it's never gonna heal it. If you're telling yourself, oh, I'll just, I'll just put that on the back burner. Not, no, we have to be individuals who are able to handle offense. Jesus gives clarity, even in that Matthew 18 passage. He says this, he says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. You know, if, if somebody is, is in sin and you know they're in sin, Not saying something isn't grace. That's hurtful. You're harming them in the long run. Now, I I don't want to stop there because Jesus then gives us the responsibility. He gives us the, the way to bring about this offense. He says this. 
If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. That does not mean you go to your spouse during pillow talk and say, man, this person is super offensive and uh, you start, listen, I I truly believe that a mark of a, a godly believer who handles conflict biblically, they understand that I have a responsibility to keep this between me and the Lord, that he's my counselor right now and I will go to that person out of respect, it doesn't mean that you, you know, call your, your friends and you say, hey, I just, I just need some prayer. I'm gonna deal with this issue and, and I just don't know how to, how to handle it. So can all 17 of you pray for me? That's just not the way this works. You go to that person, just the two of you, and he says this, if they listen to you, if you bring up their offense and the sin, you have won them over, praise the Lord. But if they will not listen, if you've gone to them privately, If they will not listen, take one or two others. That's it. It's not an estimate. That's an exact number. One or two more at the most. Why? Because we're not just trying to rebuke and be right. We're trying to restore. And the more people you bring into this process, the more difficult it's going to be. Why? Because that person who is in sin or in error is going to be them versus an entire army. And that's only going to have them put up walls. So Jesus is very clear. You go to that person. If they don't respond, you bring one or two more. People that are trustworthy, that love them, who aren't going to be subjective to emotions, but are going to be objective to the entire process because they love that person. They love you and they love the Lord, they love truth, and they're just going to be honest and loving, and they're there to bear witness. So look what it says. Just between the two of you, if, you listen, if, if they listen, you have won them over, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they, if they repent there, then praise the Lord, but if they don't, look what it says. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Now, this isn't, all right, we're about to put you on blast. We're going to go on facebook.com forward slash MWC church and just throw this on there and say, so-and-so is sinning, period. See you later. That, that's not what, he, what, he, what he's teaching. What that word church literally means, it, it's talking about the authorities in the church. You go to the leadership of the church. If someone is caught in unrepentant sin and, and you're trying to help them and trying to bring healing, then the responsibility is like, okay, we, we, we need to bring this to higher authority, someone who who can, can judge this right. Tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the authority within the church, the Bible says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. What, what does he mean by that? Do we love pagans? Do we love tax collectors? Yeah, we love them. But do we have this mutual love, this mutual we're, we're on the same team? We're, uh, no, we don't. There is a an arm's length that we keep people at. Jesus is teaching this, but he's gracious, yeah, but he's talking to people inside the church who profess Jesus, and in in the midst of their profession of faith are choosing to live in sin, and Jesus is saying, "We, we don't want that. Now, he's not saying we don't want the individual, he's saying we don't want the sin. Let me clarify this, we see this beautifully practiced in the letters to the first and, sec- first and second Corinthians. In first Corinthians, I'm not gonna read it now, we don't have time, but in first Corinthians chapter five, you can read this on your own time, I encourage you to write this down, a beautiful image of grace. In first Corinthians chapter five, there is a story of a, a, a man, Paul brings this up, he's like, there is reports that there is a man among you who is sleeping with his father's wife, 
and such sexual morality is not even practiced by the pagans. You should be ashamed of yourselves, and yet you boast? He's essentially, the church was like, we are such a welcoming and loving church that we have Christians who are living in so much sin, we continue to keep them around. Like, this is how, we're, so, we're extending so much belonging. You're like, this is, we should be a church that extends belonging, but now they're not moving people through believing and becoming. It's just belonging, belonging, belonging. You can live however you want. And, and eventually, Paul's like, listen, this is not good for you. This is not good for you. So he tells the church, he's like, listen, church, if you've already gone to this person and practiced Matthew 18, you've tried to bring healing and you know they're living in sin and they're bringing offense, go to this person, tell them what's happening and, and eventually nothing worked. They, they brought it before one, maybe two or three more, they brought it to the church and yet nothing was happening. Finally, Paul says, expel this person from among you. Literally it says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, you must call a meeting of the church Verse five, he says, I will, present, I will be present with you in spirit and so will the power of our Lord Jesus. Then you must throw this man out and have him handed over to Satan. So that, listen, what does it mean by handed over to Satan? He's saying if he wants nothing to do with God and if he's not gonna turn from his sin, then you give them up to what their hearts desire. You hand them over to Satan. But it's not so that they can be destroyed and experience hell and anguish. And No, 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 what does he say? So that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day of the Lord's return. The entire purpose is for restoration, is for healing. A couple years pass on and Paul writes to this church again and he brings up in 2 Corinthians chapter two a recap of what happens. In the story, it's not in 1 Corinthians, it's in 2 Corinthians, he continues on, he says this, I'm not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble and hurt all of you more than he hurt me. He says, most of you opposed him and that was punishment enough. So, so the church actually did that. They followed in what Paul was saying. They said, listen, brother, we love you, but you just can't live in the sin anymore. We, 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 we wanna bring healing. We've tried counseling, but you just continue to fall back into that and you want nothing to do with that. It's not even that you're struggling with sin because we don't, listen, we don't, Remove people who are struggling with sin. That's, that's not what I'm saying. This is someone who is completely unrepentant. Is that clear? I'm not saying if someone's struggling with sin, like if someone has a sailor's mouth in this church and you hear them and they're like, hey, I told you to stop saying that. Get out of here. We don't, we don't do that. We don't do that. If someone is struggling and working to better themselves through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the word of God, we don't kick people out who struggle with sin. This person was living in unrepentant sin. They were called out, they were shown the word of God, and yet they were like, no, I'm still gonna do that, not do that. He's like, you can't have fellowship here then. We, want, we, we don't want you just because this is a Christian club. We want you to be a part of the body of Christ. So eventually, they did that to this man. They loved him with tear in their eyes. They said, bro, we, we can't have this anymore. You, you, you can't worship here. It's just not right. It's not what the Lord calls us to. And this man went away. And, and by being handed over to Satan, being handed over to his heart's desires, it broke him. It broke him. He missed everything. He missed the church and he, he missed the Lord and he missed worship and he, and he was like, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? And he eventually comes back with repentance. And now Paul writes to the church and says this, you opposed him and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. 
Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. It's a beautiful picture of grace. It's a beautiful picture of, of, of how the church should operate when from instead of not dealing with issues and putting things on the back burner or not going to our brothers and sisters with peace and love, when we do go to them, what is the result? The person is, is refined. We are refined. We are, we are taught to hold to a higher standard and, and we trust the Lord and we believe in him. We don't just like allow things that we, we deal with situations. We don't have resentment. We don't have frustration. We learn how to practice biblical conflict resolution. And here's why we talk about all of this. The reason why unforgiveness is unbecoming for us. The reason why God's desire is for us not to be unforgiving Grinches is because, friends, ultimately you and I have been forgiven of so much. We've been forgiven of so much that a mark of the forgiveness we have received is the ability to forgive others. So if there's someone or a situation that you've been holding on to and harboring, I believe that God wants to bring healing, restoration this morning. I believe he wants to bring forgiveness where you have not been able to. If you feel like your prayer life has been hampered and that you're not receiving from the Lord, perhaps there's some unforgiveness in your heart. So can we just take the last few moments, the last few minutes of our service this evening and just seek the Lord, ask him to give us some clarity. If there's any, like there's only one of two responses that we can have here. Either we, we say, Lord, thank you for forgiving me or we say, Lord, help me to forgive others. But I believe that all of us in this place need that, one or the other. We need to be thankful for the forgiveness that God has given us or we need to ask the Lord to help us forgive others. Let's just take a few moments and, and seek the Lord.